Welcome to Key Change, the COC's new podcast exploring everything about opera from a fresh perspective. Welcome to our fourth episode. We're your hosts, Robin Grant Moran and Julie McIsaac. It's hard to believe that our first season is almost coming to a close. It's really been flying by. And we're very excited that we'll be back in the winter with a new round of episodes to share with you. We've so much loved this journey through the opera experience, and we'd love to hear from you, our listeners, about your own experiences, uh, thoughts that you might have about the show, and even if you have ideas for future episodes, it'd be great to hear them. You can find us on social media at Canadian Opera, all one word, or send us an email at audiences at coc.ca. We'd love to hear from you. Now, as a stage director, I'm really excited about today's episode, particularly the opportunity that it's going to give us to gain some insight into how different opera practitioners approach developing the concept and design for a new production. So today we'll be focusing on visual storytelling and the collaborative process that brings a production to the stage, as well as those magical moments on stage that really wow us. I'm really looking forward to sharing what our next guests had to say about these moments of theatre magic. First, we'll hear from former Governor General of Canada, the Right Honourable Adrian Clarkson, for an audience member's perspective. Madam Clarkson is a leading figure in Canada's cultural life. She's had a rich and distinguished career in broadcasting, journalism, the arts, and public service. She's also a major fan and a longtime supporter of the Canadian Opera Company, Absolutely. We're very grateful for her support of the art form, and we're delighted that she was able to spend some time in conversation with us. She's a huge Wagnerite, big fan, and was wowed by the Met's recent live stream of Parsifal. It's the Wagner opera that she's actually seen more so than any other. And like many of us, she wishes she could have seen it at the COC this past fall as originally planned. And she'll tell us about that. She actually has a lot of stories and experience with Wagner Productions. And she happens to be a big fan of productions by Michael Levine. So we often obviously had to speak to him about how he goes about creating such magic on stage. Michael is an internationally acclaimed Canadian set and costume designer, and COC audiences, you may remember him from his collaborations with director Robert Carson, like productions of Eugene Onegin and Dialogue of the Carmelites, among others, as well as Bluebeard's Castle, Ervartung, in collaboration with Robert Lepage. But first, let's hear from Madame Clarkson. Thanks for joining us, Madam Clarkson. Can you tell us about the first time you saw Parsifal? We were very fortunate to be able to go to Bayreuth in 2005. When I was Governor General, we took on our holidays, but we went and we um, that's where I first saw Parsifal. So in the, the Shrine of Shrines, it's not an opera festival, you know, Bayreuth. Bayreuth is a is like Chart or like uh, Lourdes. It's, it's a religious ceremony. And the people there are pilgrims and they go every year. And I saw the production of Parsifal that was conducted by Pierre Boulez and directed by a poor gentleman called Christian Schlingensief, 
who is very well was known in Germany because he had been quite a prominent film director. And he, uh, this production was dreadful. Uh, the music was wonderful. And we were seated in Bayreuth, which is at, like, extraordinary, has extraordinary acoustics. I mean, Wagner built it for his, you know, his music, his everything, that lip of the that covers the orchestra pit. It was so extraordinary. There was a big rake on the stage, which was terrifying. I'm always terrified when there's a rake on the stage because I'm terrified for the performers that mm -hmm. they will stumble mm -hmm. on them. And, and especially in things that have a lot of costumes that they'll roll down the hills or something. And anyway, so there's this huge mountain of something or other. And then Kundry and Kundry appears, and I don't you can't tell what Kundry is, whether it's a man or a woman or anything, dressed in what looked like old dilapidated flags. And um and then when Parsifal uh shoots the swan very early in, it's supposed to be a swan. So what falls to the ground is a large rabbit or a hare, I guess. <laughs> so at that point the audience is restive, right, in its seats. And um at the sort of uh, intermission, just as we were going out, we were seated beside a very elegantly dressed gentleman. He turned out to be a Slovenian, uh, but now Swiss banker, had been coming to Bayreuth every year for one week for 31 years. And he said, is this your first time? And I said, yes. And he said, you know, this, this is one of those performances where you just close your eyes and listen to the music. And so it was beyond ridiculous. However, the music was beautiful. The singing was beautiful. And it also, we had, we were invited to dinner at the intermission by uh, Wolfgang Wagner. And he, he had a dinner of 10 people, himself, his wife, and the other major guest was Richard Strauss's grand, grandson. Wow. Um, wow. And so I was seated, we were seated at a table with these legendary families, et cetera, in this extraordinary place. None of us commented at all on the production. And um, that was just as wise. But it was extraordinary to see these two profiles that I could see down the table of Wagner and Strauss. And they were absolutely the epitome of their families. I mean, Richard Strauss's grands grandson looked like him. And Wolfgang Wagner's profile looked like Richard Wagner. So it was amazing. Then that one, I sort of, that was in 2005. And about a year or so later, um, we were in Berlin and I saw Chernyakov's production. Mm. And now Chernyakov is kind of a madman, but I think he's a very interesting opera director. We've seen his production of Don Giovanni. Then I saw uh, about two years ago, the revival of Francois Girard's Parsifal at the Met. Wonderful. I'm just going to chime in for a moment, Madam Clarkson, and just let our listeners know, for those who might not be aware, that this production, the Francois Girard production that you've just started speaking about, was, of course, supposed to be the production that was seen at the COC this fall, had we been able to go forward with it, that co-production with the Met and Opéra National de Lyon. And we'd love to hear more about your experience watching that broadcast and uh, the specifics of what, what engages you around the Girard production. Well, I have a, a very vested interest in Francois Girard because I gave him, you know, one of his first contracts for television <laughs> on Adrian Clarkson Presents when he was doing very short films on dance and music which with a company called Agent Orange. And I thought he was a genius then. He was about 12 years old. 
Um, and uh, I, I was buying everything that he made. And then one day I didn't buy something and he told me that I had ruined his Christmas. And I was very sorry about that, but I knew that it wasn't going to ruin his career. He went on to do Le Daltois, which was a, a wonderful piece of theater and dance. And then suddenly uh, he was invited to do one of the four, one of the four uh, uh, I think he did Siegfried, didn't he? In, in, mm-hmm. the, in, the, uh, in the ring that opened the opera house. And he, I mean, it's amazing. He's become the most amazing Wagner director in the world and probably the most sought after. Doesn't speak a word of German, as far as I know. I had no musical background, but he understands Wagner. He has mainstreamed Wagner in a way. His productions of Wagner are extraordinary. And this Parsifal is unbelievable because he does he does away with all the kind of the flower girls and the and yeah, instead of which everybody is drenched in blood. And um, and I, I I think that that production of uh, of Parsifal is probably I will never be never see another that is as wonderful as that. Um, the, the the design, of course, is part of it, but the design is all in the in the director's minds, and he gets the person who designs it with him to to collaborate. And I just think it's extraordinary. And of course, being somebody who's interested in 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 theater and performance and so on, I have to say every time I see it, how do, do they get new costumes every time? Because the blood is all over those maidens' clothing. And it comes pouring down on everything. How do they manage to do that? I just, I don't know. Can you talk a little bit more about your thoughts on the theatrical magic that made the the blood and the lighting? I did believe when I was doing television, especially studio television, but also out, you know, when we were on site doing documentaries and especially the last series I did of Adrian Clarkson Presents, that lighting is everything. Lighting is the most important thing to a performer and also, I think, to the audience. And so I always look for lighting and I always look at lighting credits when I'm watching theater because I find that the lighting, the director can't do anything unless he has a lighting companion. And the great theater the opera director I'm going to talk about next, Robert Carson, he worked hand in hand with only two lighting directors and he himself has his electrician's card to light. I mean, he can light at the Metropolitan. He can light here because he belongs to the unions. It's a very, very important thing, lighting. And um, lighting is everything. I mean, I, I, uh, I'm i so old that I was the person who was experimented a lot on when, we, when CBC went from black and white television to color television in 1969. And for a year before it, we were uh, experimented on with, you know, we were going to have lighting scoops on the floor. We were having a talk. And the great lighting director of the CBC who lit all the dramas that were done, a lot of them were done live, called Johnny Grizel. Um, I got to know quite well. And Johnny just knew about lighting. And he said to me, never let anybody light you for anything that that would be, unless unless you know that they're not lighting you like a piece of furniture you're not a piece of furniture. You're a human being. And the lighting has to model that. And I've always remembered that. So when I see a production, I know when it's been lit well. I don't know how to do it. I can't tell you, you know, what's a key light or what, where you should move it. But lighting is everything. And I think that in the Parsifal of, um, of Francois Girard, you see that. 
And you see, it's not just that they can manage to get the red blood coming out. Um, and the design is beautiful. I mean, I think those maidens in their white, in their white shifts with their long hair, uh, they're, they're both archetypal feminine and yet archetypal victim, um, their frailty, their delicacy, um, and the whole idea of, of the, the blood being the connecting thing between the Holy Grail, which was the cup of the Last Supper, the wound of Amfortas, the spear. It's, it, it just is a huge link. It's wonderful. I'm wondering if you could speak to us a little bit about the set design and the costumes and the I'm going to use the word updating of the Knights of the Grail, but that might not be the right word, but just the way they've been interpreted in this particular production by Girard and by Michael Levine. Well, in this production, the costuming and so on, which gives you a kind of eternal feeling, and yet the Knights are not clanking around in armor. You know, that just gets in the way. I mean, sometimes we have evolved as audiences and what brilliant theater directors and opera directors know that. We don't need to see people in costumes. We know what that all looks like. You may need to see it on Game of Thrones. You certainly do not need to see it on the stage of the Canadian Opera Company or at Bayreuth. And what you need to see is costuming and design and lighting that will bring you to the intensity of the work of art which is being presented. And that's what they have done in, in, in the Parsifal. Um, when you see the men in their suits and you see the women in their shifts and you see the lighting, uh, all of that leads you into what is what is knighthood anyway. But knighthood is a group of men who are belong to the same caste, C-A-S-T-E, and who are together in that way. So wearing the suits in Parsifal, you know, men in suits are a caste. Um, so what you, what you have is you instantly recognize that they are part of a group. Uh, it's not necessary to put them in the 10th century, the 14th century or anything. It's just what we understand now as a caste. So that's the kind of thing I would just use that as a specific thing. And then if you have great actors as well as great singers, when you see that, when you even see something like Klingsor that... You don't, you don't depend upon it being the costume or the makeup. It's the singing, the music, lighting particularly, and a total concept of what this, what this opera means. It's great to, for, to help illustrate for our audience how much the production design and the vision of the stage director inform the production that the audience then receives. I'm just thinking for our listeners who've maybe only ever seen one production of a particular opera, for them to be opened up to this whole expanse of interpretation that you're opening us up to. It's wonderful. I think it's really important because, um, you know, Verdi, when he premiered um, uh, La Traviata in 1847 or six, something like that, uh, it was a, not a success. And the reason it was not a success was that he set it in the t- period of his of them. It was a modern dress production. It was the costume of the co- clothes that people wore in 1848. And people hated that. They hated it. He got booed. He got hissed. He had to remount it later a year and make compromises, etc. So people's ideas of what they think they should see are very, very, very much uh, tailored to what they think they should be seeing, uh, what they're used to seeing. 
I think with great art, your mind and heart have to be, and eyes have to be always open to what is the real meaning, because the genius is in the work of art, uh, and the production should serve that. You've seen a lot of operas and many different productions of the same opera. And I'm just wondering which sort of captured the the magic of theater most for you. I mean, obviously, Parsifal was, is a very powerful experience. But can you tell us about other, your top five list? My top top is Robert Carson's production of Dialogue of the Carmelites which we have put on at the Canadian Opera Company, but which was first put on in 1997 at the Netherlands Opera Company in Amsterdam. And I went to do a program. I was doing a program on Robert Carson, the great Canadian director um, who has made his career in Europe. Uh, and it was that was the opera produ- production he was working on. So we went there. And I spent, you know, several weeks following him doing that. So I watched it through rehearsals, etc. And then I saw it on opening night. And I have to say that Michael Levine, who designed it for him, and he used Poulenc's music, which is sublime, uh, and produced something that was the very essence, actually, of the intersection of power and religion. There isn't a single cross or religious thing in Dialogue of the Carmelites, and yet it's the most profoundly religious of the of any opera I've ever seen. The idea of sacrifice and of victimhood in in the service of good and belief uh, is carried out in the most extraordinary way, and you'll never find a greater scene than the um, the final scene when the nuns are uh, all guillotined. But the way in which Robert Carson developed that into a Sufi-like trance, the nuns do a Sufi-like dance in which they're all twirling around. It's just, and then they go off, you know, in this bliss of mysticism to their martyrdom in, a one, in an opera you shouldn't be thinking there are these pieces uh, and you like this and you didn't like that. It should all come together because opera without that is totally ridiculous. Opera is <laughs> the most ridiculous of art forms unless it's done sublimely. Mm. I mean, you've got one or two people or sometimes, of course, you know, singing over an entire orchestra, which is below them and in front of them. And there's scenery and all this stuff, and there's supposed to be a story. And it, it is, I think that's really why a lot of people who really are crazy about opera like me really understand the absurd. Um, because it can be, even, but even the worst operas to me have a charm about them and something that's wonderful because that effort has been made to bring all those things together. And it's so unlikely. But when it works, boy, does it work. I was completely blown away by the depth and breadth of Madame Clarkson's knowledge about Mm -hmm. opera. And I loved what she was saying about light, how she brought our attention to the fact that Mm -hmm. in the theater, the director can frame what they want you to look at on stage by using light. And that's different than a process in film and TV, whereas there's a whole process of editing that helps us to know what to look at. 
And lighting and framing is so important when you're looking at costuming. Mm-hmm. I had the exact same question Madam Clarkson did about the costumes in Parsifal. So, of course, we had to chat with the COC's costume supervisor, Sandra Carazza, to find out just how do you get the blood out of those costumes every night? Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we're really curious, knowing that we weren't able to see Parsifal this season, but we very much hope to bring it to audiences in a future season. What, w- what were you and your team working on to prepare for Parsifal? What did your preparation look like? The preparation started many years ago. So the first time the Met put it on stage, which was in the middle of a snowstorm, I do remember that, uh, we all got to go to New York and see it. And at that point, we saw it from in front of the curtain. Uh, the team down there was amazing, from the head of the costume shop to the people who ran the wardrobe. They walked us through things backstage. But it's a madhouse back there. <laughs> it's this weird little factory, and it's so full. There, there was very little order to it. It was just as you walked by a room, they'd explain everything that was going on in there. And I wrote down notes madly and came back and, and tried to type it all up. Then a couple of years ago, we were fortunate that we got to go again. And this time we watched it from backstage. So by that point, your, your brains are sort of half full and you've got your questions all lined up and you know what's coming. Yeah. And that let us watch the whole process, especially Act 2, which has the pool of blood in it. How will you get the blood out of the dresses in time for the next performance? It's magic. Um, we, we don't have the full casting of our course yet, but we believe that we will get enough slips, slips, white dresses, whatever you want to call mm-hmm. them, that every person in our cast will have two. So that gives us just a little bit of time. Um, after that, it will be, it could possibly be some overnights. The process is long. So for the course, it won't be hard. Those slips might get a little blood on them. They're nudes, as we call them. So everything that you would wear underneath your white slip, um, which could be a leotard, Spanx, nude bras, etc. Those things probably won't get stained, but they all need to be washed. So that's just plain wash, hang to dry, steam, put it back in the dressing room. The 19 dancer ones have a process where they go into what they called the marinade. So when these dancers come off stage, they basically strip there was a series of bins. So one bin gets your robe. One bin gets your towels. The wig and makeup team is there. They take your wig. Remember, it's a wig that goes down to about knee length. So it's a really long wig. It's soaked by this point. And you then take off your nudes and your slip, which are all attached in one piece. They've all been snapped together. So you just pull that on down and leave it in a pile and a dresser will come along and unsnap the nudes from the white slip. The white slips then had a rinse in water. Then I believe here we'll probably then take them to another room, put them again in water with something called fairy soap, which is this great dish detergent we get from the UK. And I don't know why we don't have an alternative in Canada. Maybe Dawn is the closest, but it's a pretty amazing product. And we've already bought like about 24 jars of it. It's it's. (laughs) Because it wasn't just, oh, I'll put a capful in. It was, I'm going to hold the bottle and squirt onto these slips and rinse and rinse and water and rinse and rinse some more. They then got kind of wrung out. 
and put in the marinade, which was uh, three huge buckets that were prepared during Act One. And they had uh, more fairy soap put in them and OxyClean. And then they were left there for two days, which is kind of scary. When we've worked with Michael before, because he likes his blood, he really does. (laughs) Uh, We've always used natural fibers, which is interesting. One of Michael's shows was Bluebeard of Vartung, which we've had in our repertoire for a long time. And it's, it's a near and dear to my heart. Uh, but that's all natural fibers. It's all cottons and silks. And we literally brew, like we bring it to the simmer, a pot of water that has uh, chemical color removers that we put into the pot. And then her bloody dress then goes into that pot and is simmered. And, and it's amazing to sort of watch the blood just disappear. That was fascinating. She's really seen so much. She really has. And if you're not familiar with just how bloody this production of Parsifal is, we'll put a link to some examples in this week's show notes at coc.ca slash keychange. Sandra had lovely things to say about having worked with Michael Levine on past productions. And we know that so many of our listeners are big fans of his work. So let's dive in and find out how that magic that he creates on stage is brought to life. Michael Levine, thank you for joining us today. When you're the set or costume designer for a production, how do you approach that process? Well, the process is an interesting one when you're working on a production as a designer, um, because you, of course, start with whatever the piece is. You know, that is your initial point of departure. So depending on whether you're working in the theater or in an opera or whatever. So in if you're working in the theater, you have the words. And so that's your point of departure. And in the world of opera, you have this two these two things. One is the words and one is the music. And the, the two of them uh, require uh, the same amount of attention in some regard. So there's a kind of slight difference when you're working on a play because the music of the piece comes much later in the process. It, it comes with the actors further on. So you can read the play, you understand the concepts of the play, you understand the place, the environment that it might be in, and also the quality of it, but you don't have the atmosphere yet you know part of what i do is try to kind of imagine the pace of that uh try to imagine the atmosphere when you're working on an opera for example um the atmosphere comes with the production it comes with the music we know that our coc audiences were so looking forward to seeing parsifal this fall and unfortunately they weren't able to see it this season but we're hoping to bring it to them in a future season and so how what was related to what you've Talk to us about how did that inform your experience and your approach to designing the sets for Parsifal? Parsifal was a really interesting story because Parsifal is really dense as a story and musically, it's really mm-hmm. dense. It's very, um, it's where Wagner brings all of these themes that right. um, run through all of his operas, these strange, fascinating themes of religion and the will of man and all of these different kind of they all collide in Parsifal. And also his sort of idea of religion, which is sort of slightly Buddhist and Christian, it's just all kind of mixed up in Parsifal. And the piece is really impenetrable. Um, it's very difficult to to understand what's going on. And um, there's a scene 
at the center of Parsifal, which is a key scene, which is when Kundri kisses Parsifal. Mm -hmm. And it's a moment where she, it's a really weird scene. It's like you're listening to it and you're reading it. You think, what is this scene about? Uh, So, because Kundri, who's supposed to be like a prostitute, um, is trying to lure Parsifal to sin. Mm -hmm. But she's doing that by pretending to be his mother, which is too weird. (laughs) You know, she's pretending to be his dying mother. And so it became this question that I kept on coming back to when I was working on it with Francois is why does she pretend to be his dying mother to make him feel guilty that he left without saying goodbye as a form of seduction? It just seems so odd. She's using, she's embodying his mother's guilt in order to get him to kiss her. It's really, really strange. And I couldn't, and there was something about that. And then there was something about his rejection of that. So she appeals to his, his sense of guilt, his deep sense of guilt in order to seduce him and the, and he rejects her and we wanted that rejection to somehow be somehow relating to the whole rejection of, because I think that's kind of a little bit central to Parsifal is the rejection of the female and there's something about cardinal sin, the first sin and all of that which is mm-hmm. caught up in that mm-hmm. um, I mean it's you know, it's a very controversial thing in our society right now. But I wanted that humiliation of the woman to be the kind of the center point of the whole piece, because I think that is key to what he was thinking about in, in his sort of notion of the rejection of this sin and what that meant. It's this kind of notion of Adam and Eve. And so ultimately what came out of our conversation was that the humiliation of Kundri has to be really horrible. It has mm. to be emotionally horrible for the audience. And it, I think it's something that is can be overlooked in Parsifal. And for me, it was the central key to the story. Um, and so then we started, you know, we had got to the point where they were on a bed together, because it made sense, because she was trying to seduce him by pretending to be his mom. And um, we wanted him to push her off the bed and, and friends, Francois said, well, we'll push her off the bed and that'll be humiliating. And I said, well, it's not really enough. I think we need. And so then we came up with the idea that maybe she should fall off the bed and, and fall into blood because blood is a theme that runs through the piece. And then from that, we thought, oh, well, oh, yeah, maybe she should. Maybe the floor should be blood. Maybe what she falls into is blood. So then that was a big discovery. So that we thought, oh, well, it's, yeah, because flooding the stage with blood is not a not just a small thing you have to think okay with it yeah so you've got a bed and you have blood so then like in the process where you're work when you're working on something you hold you try to hold on to those things that you find so you found the bed we found blood and then you kind of work out from there and then we had discovered in act one that we wanted our landscape to be a barren landscape um a landscape that was because it's about this society that has a wound at the center of it. Right. Um, so you have this society that has this wound that needs to be healed. And so 
And what we were looking for is a, is a metaphor for that, which was a kind of parched landscape, yeah. a river that's no longer running. Um, mm. And in order to heal that wound in the society, we had to understand what caused the wound in the first place. Um, and so we had this parched landscape with this river uh, that was dry. And then we opened the landscape and we found that we could, at that point, we thought, oh, well, we, if we, if Parsifal was able to kind of fall into the river as if he was in a film, he would fall into the river to discover what the root of the problem was. Then he would fall into this other place, this other world mm -hmm. where he could he, help heal the the society. Right. And, and so then we thought, oh, well, if he falls into the river, then he falls down and he'll end up in a place where there are, where this blood is. Yeah, so the flower maidens are there, and they're the guardians of this other place. And right. so, mm -hmm. um, and it became this kind of metaphor of uh, it's like in this valley was where you found the blood, which is where mm -hmm. Kundri lived, but she was on top of this bed, um, mm -hmm. which meant that she was in this pure place mm -hmm. or pretending to be pure. And it all started to spring out of that, out of this kind of layers of really from yeah. the blood outwards, you know, and then there are kind of simple decisions that were taken along the way, which is that when you get to act three, the society is really dying by then members of the society really die. So the stage is covered with buried, um, mm -hmm. freshly buried graves. Mm -hmm. And so then it becomes a little bit about a, a, the story of a rejuvenation of the society. So there are these kind of little, it became something about blood and nature, trying mm -hmm. to bring flow back into the river again. Yeah, and connected to women and this kind of strange fear of women in the piece, uh, which is why he descends into this place which is full of blood. There are these two cliffs that run up the side, which are actually incredibly vaginal. It's, um, you know, mm. it's yeah they're meant to be cl they're cliffs but they're actually it's like being inside a kind of enormous vagina um and without being in a vagina and um <laughs> but you know it's all it's really connected to that yeah. uh you have the flower maidens who are the keepers of that place um right. so and there's a real sense of him being in a kind of female world but then it's a very strange thing with the what they do um no, but the ideas that come from the text and that come from the score then translate into these aesthetic ideas and these shapes that find their and these textures that find their way on stage. It's it's lovely to gain that insight. The other guest that we're interviewing for this episode, uh, Michael, is the right honorable Adrian Clarkson, who's a huge opera fan, Wagner fan. So she's seen a lot of your work. And uh, I wonder, I might toss it over to you, Robin, for that next question that relates to something that uh, Madame Clarkson shared with us. An opera that she found particularly moving was the Dialogue of the Carmelites. And it was your production with Robert Carson. So I was wondering what made that partnership so successful? Yeah, Robin and I worked together for a really long time. We had this really interesting story that nobody really knows about, which is I was designing Eugene Onyegin for the Met. And, um, and I designed this incredibly wonderful sort of extravagant St. Petersburg house in perspective, a sort of interior in perspective, and sort of going back with all this sort of beautiful St. Petersburg stuff inside it. It was actually really, I thought it was really nice. It was like a kind of room, ornate room downstage that became 
less and less ornate as it went upstage. And so Tatiana's room was at the back and it was going to come all the way to the front, this little room, which was like a version of the big room, but small and stripped of decoration. And always a memory of, uh, that was from, from Onyegin's point of view, of this mistake, this terrible moment of mistake that Onyegin had taken. And I had designed this really extravagant set with quite gilded and all of those things. And I presented the Met in a preliminary design. And um, they said, fine, that looks great, great. And so I went away and worked for a couple of months perfecting all the, uh, everything and all the details. It was quite a lot of work. And then I handed it in and they were like, well, it's a little bit, I don't know, it's a bit like our Queen of Spades. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Wait, what, what? You? I just handed this in. I've <laughs> been working on it for like five months. What do you, what? And then we had this moment. It's really interesting. So I was, I was kind of devastated. I thought, oh my mm. gosh, you know, that's really the end of that. And um, they was like, they were like, come up with something different. <laughs> like what? And this was a finished design where you do wow. it's a model and it's, um, you know, it's a lot of time. You'd already and money. reached that point with it. Yeah, right. It's like a finished product you're handing yeah. in. Yeah. Um, and that night, we were at the bar across the road from the Met, and I was like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? Like, that's crazy. I said, this is crazy. Like, we just can't do it. I mean, no, because I was also onto another project after it. I was like, I don't have time to redesign Eugene Onegan from scratch. <laughs> um, and then we had this idea. We were like, let's, like, not do that big extravagant, you know, St. Petersburg thing. Let's try to just kind of strip it all away to the essential story. And this was like, you know, one of those crazy stories you read about on the back of a bar mat you know um napkin thing and i said let's just take away all of the non-essential decorative detail and try to tell the story as just the story of on yegan's memory so you know maybe it just is the essential Mm -hmm. things we need and and it's more memory space which is then we came to this new version which was uh it was basically in a kind of white box and there are some objects in it which are kind of memory and filled with leaves which is the coc did um, yes that i was um, going to say yes mm-hmm. yeah it's been at the so and it was a really interesting and for us that was kind of like a big thing because in fact um stripping it away um i think it was a, a, a it was an incredible kind of learning experience because we thought yeah it's actually a much better production I mean, we got like the critics were terrible for it when we opened in New York. They thought they thought it was like the worst thing they'd ever seen, and like what happened to our beautiful old production of Eugene Onegin? We loved it. It had houses and walls, and we loved it. And so that was a little disappointing. Mm-hmm. But um, however, it became the much loved production of yeah, the Met right. um, yeah. over a period of time. And then when they did their new production of uh, Eugene Onegin, directed by Deborah Warner, they then said, "Well, what? What about our old? We we love our old production of Eugene Onegin." In the productions, like what you're describing, there's so much, so much detail that goes into creating this magic that we see on stage. What's the most memorable bit of stage magic that you've helped create? There's a terrible thing that happens to you when you're working on a production, you know, because you work on them. For so long, and you start off by you know learning about the production, and then you go on to you know begin to design it, and then the design process is quite complicated. And then you know once you have an idea and you're excited about, it, then you begin to 
figure out practically how to build that idea, how to, um, and that then you have to sort of p- pick it apart. And um, so you're looking at it from all different aspects and you're trying to hold on to your original inspiration so that it, it captures the audience in the same way that it captured you. Um, and but by the time you get to the kind of finished process, you're like, oh, it's none of it's like as good as it should be. And you know, even though you're trying really hard to make it, and it's always really nice to come back to a production several years um, or a couple of years after you've made it because it feels very, oh yeah, no, it's it's okay because you're less involved in all the tiny little technical. Oh look, you're always like, oh that corner, there's a piece of dirt on it and um and so you can't see the production so it's really hard when you're actually making the production to see any magic in it at all i've had the chance to work on so many lovely productions and interesting productions and i feel like um there are so many uh, at so many different points in and on the on various productions i've achieved that i felt really proud of what i've done and for me the really magical moments are where everything comes together um, so that you have, you know, whether it be a theater piece or an opera, is that you really feel like all of the disciplines in the theater have come together. So, you know, the lighting designer's work and my work and the director's work and the choreographer and the musicians. And, you know, I mean, it's an incredible thing, which I think people take for granted is that all of these people are working together to make this string of little moments work mm-hmm. every night in the same way um right. because you know so you have the lighting has to be exactly right and if you can do that if you can kind of get that hand to move into the light at the right moment when your environment has just the perfect amount of let's say smoke in the air that's lighting the thing and you know and the sound of that flute or whatever it is you know, combines together, it's, it's fantastic. And I'm always really on kind of opening night after I've been through the whole pain of making the production. I feel incredibly grateful that I'm, you know, I've been a part of this incredible this kind of undertaking, yeah. um, which is amazing because you have all of these people working together and the liveness of it is extraordinary. You know, um, the way lights work is that, you know, if you're lighting something, say, from the side, you know, you have these shutters that shutter down on it so you don't light everything else. It's really like two millimeters moving something in so that it's shuttered down to the right thing. So you're not lighting something you don't want to be lighting. You don't want the audience to look over there. You want them to look there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if the light, blasts all over the side they're all looking at something else which they should be looking at the singer singing the thing and so you know you'll be watching an opening night performance and the you know you won't have the two millimeters and you think oh and that moment's gone but then sometimes you will and you think oh that's nice it's perfect I found Michael Levine's point about theater magic coming more from the mundane to be really interesting. It was in sharp contrast with what Madame Clarkson had said about the importance of lighting. 
Yeah, there's this really interesting contrast between the designer and the technicians and this whole team doing this series of, like you said, these mundane, precise tasks that need to happen that in the end create this effect that is experienced by the audience as super magical, but that they might be approaching it from two different sides, that the audience members experiencing in a different way than the people who are working really hard to make it happen. Right? Like if you're backstage at an opera, which of course is a vantage point that many people never get to experience. It's just this crazy choreographed dance Mm -hmm. with people leaving one exit and then running to another entrance. So they might be running around the back of the set. There's the stage manager calling directions Mm -hmm. constantly, that that ever-ticking clock. Yeah. And the fact like, because it's a live art form, the fact that things are balanced on such a a tricky balance that things can go wrong so easily. But then those nights where things just come together and the stage manager calls that cue just in the right pocket, just that right moment. So that like Michael was saying, so the smoke is rising and the light is hitting the hand and this, yeah, this crazy choreographed dance that is slightly different every night. It absolutely. And I love that. That's kind of the tension in the magic for me. Uh, Sandra, someone that I've gotten to know in my experiences at the COC, but I didn't know, Robin, if you'd met Sandra before, or what your takeaways were from having that experience with her. Yeah, no, I only know her name from programs and by reputation. The number of showers needed, like that has never crossed my mind mm-hmm. that, yeah, if you have people who are covered in blood, they need to get clean. Mm-hmm. And the sheer amount of laundry. Right. For to be reminded. And there's a lot of laundry, even just in a regular production that doesn't flood the stage with blood. Like laundry is an important <laughs> element. And uh, I think it's really important for us to remember of uh, those things that we might deem to be mundane, like laundry are actually a really important part of the process. And none of this could happen without those hardworking people. Then going back to the lighting, like just a millimeter making a difference with how your eye is directed. And if the laundry isn't done perfectly, like Mm -hmm. if there's, it's just so many things happening at once Mm -hmm. that could go wrong every performance. And somehow, as if by magic, it all comes together. We really are as a species like herding cats. (laughs) So... (laughs) that people can that like a small team can organize so many people to make so many things happen Mm -hmm. it really is a remarkable accomplishment i think of humanity i I know it sounds cheesy no no but it it is really remarkable yeah robin do you have a moment of a design intervention or a design moment that really shaped your experience or appreciation of an opera? When I was living in London, I saw a production of Alcina. And I believe it was Sue Blaine who did the costumes. She did the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And so it was all these fabulous, opulent period pieces. But the fabrics were holographic. Oh, and like, and vinyl. So it had this futuristic, not yet really an existent steampunk kind mm-hmm. of vibe to it. But I think that was sort of the moment for me where I had a very, suddenly had a very different appreciation of the power of light 
and costume and convention and how you can play with those things and create entirely new and different and exciting worlds. What I love about it, and I'm not a costume designer, so I don't have all the right vocabulary to speak about this, but the fact that there's a silhouette, so there's the shape of the costume, which might suggest a particular era historically, like the shape Mm -hmm. of the skirts on the women, or are they corseted, are they not, or the men's suits and the cut of the suit. But then there's also uh, texture, like what are those fabrics? And that you can take a silhouette of a certain era and a texture from another era and combine them in these novel ways and create these interesting effects by virtue of mixing up those things, those elements. I like the creativity of combining the sort of more minimalist approach with, like you said, more historically suggestive costuming. It it takes it out of a museum context, but it still has that original, the whispers of its origins and where it fits historically. Mm-hmm. And I find that there's something when the production is more spare I find that I potentially I have more opportunities of realizing just the humanity of the characters. Mm-hmm. There's something yeah. about, it takes away this this level of artifice or something, and I see the character more as just a fellow human. Yeah, and I mean, like you don't have the distractions of the heavy opulence. Mm-hmm. It's also making me realize that in my own practice, I am very visual in terms of the storytelling. And I know that until we're at a certain point in our rehearsal process and with adding tech where things are working spatially in the way that I think or that I hope serves the story the best, I have trouble focusing on some of the other elements. So the visual storytelling and the integration of the lighting and bodies and space in particular, mm-hmm. like how bodies carve out space and significance and meaning by virtue of how much distance is there between those two characters and what does that speak about tension and about their relationship until those spatial elements are aligned in the right way. I find it hard to then shift to another perspective as a stage director. Ah, that makes a lot of sense. Like I hadn't, I mean, I don't think that much like a director. Mm. So how things get created is really, it's a mystery to me, even though I am ostensibly somewhat part of it. Mm -hmm. It's still, you guys do this whole otherworldly miracle work <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Oh, that's so um, sweet of you to say, or it's, it's lovely to hear that it's perceived in that way. And interesting because as you're doing it, like Michael said in his interview, it feels onerous. It feels, you know, it feels like you're really in this like mundane trying to get this to that. How he just broke everything down, like how he, if he's going to do a production, mm-hmm. how he takes it apart Yeah. Like it's just completely stripped apart and subdivided so he can then assemble it. Then put it back together. I was just like when he was speaking about Parseval and how it was really about that kiss, that moment of the kiss. Right. And how that became a central point of inquiry for them in terms of figuring out what does that moment mean in our telling of the story and how everything then had to, had to come out from that. So it's like, she's going to fall off the bed. Okay. She's going to fall off the bed into blood. Okay. There's going to be blood and how then it all comes out from that one central moment or that one thing that they deem to be essential or important in their telling of the story. And you also just never know what it is that's going to capture your imagination or your passion as Mm -hmm. an artist working on the production, that it might be something buried in act three, but that by virtue, but that it can illuminate your understanding of the whole opera. Yeah. I sometimes like a really grandiose 
mm-hmm. production. And I never really know what to think going in if I know something's going to be more minimal or sparse. Mm-hmm. In a way, like you said, when you don't have all that artifice, that you can connect to the performers and the characters more as people. But what that actually outside of that with the storytelling, how to look at it or what that means. I found a lot of things clicked for me listening to Michael Levine speak about that process. Okay. And the idea of Eugene Onyegin, where he had this lush set planned and that it got denied at a very awkward time in the the production process. So he had to then reimagine it basically in a bar on the back of a cocktail napkin. And that having the costumes with the minimalist set, I don't know, something just clicked there for me where it's like, it is a, it can be a much more nuanced approach to telling a story because you are so focused on the characterization. Well, and it brings my attention to the, this idea of atmosphere and how is atmosphere mm-hmm. created? And you can create atmosphere by virtue of a very like with with there's velour and there's tapestries and there's really rich materials and that creates an atmosphere of what this house is like. But you can also create atmosphere, an emotional atmosphere. You know, is there right. fear? Is there doubt? Is there trepidation? Is there intrigue? And that can be created through a combination of lighting and mm-hmm. the angle of the lighting and the number of bodies on stage and their spatial relationship to the central protagonist. And so there's there's all these different ways that we can create atmosphere. And some of them are material and tangible, and some of them have to do with light and space. And they're things that are less, um, at first glance, you don't put your finger on them in the same way. Mm-hmm. And yet they're very powerful and evocative. Yeah, I'll definitely be looking into once we have opera again to attend. I'll be looking at minimalist productions or more minimal productions with a very different set of eyes after the conversations that we've had. Yeah, I'll find myself looking at productions and trying to figure out what was the thing? Mm. Like, what was that one? What was that gem that they unlocked in their early conversations right. and that collaboration with the designer and the director? What do I think that was that then, like, if they don't, if they don't share it, they might share it in director's notes or something like that and, and kind of invite us into that. But if they don't, or if it's just a fun exercise to go into it and to watch and to receive a production and try to figure out, okay, what was it that captured them? Mm. Was it a word? Was it a theme? Was it a moment? So many exciting new ways to look at things. It was great to have this opportunity to talk about Parsifal and just to let everyone know that Parsifal will be coming as part of the 22-23 COC season. So keep the hope alive. Thank you for your patience. And we hope this has whetted your appetite a little bit. And speaking of productions in the future... Our final episode of this season, of the 2020 season, will be about the future of opera. That next episode is going to come out on December 22nd, and we've got lots of exciting stuff in store for 2021 as well. And remember, we love to hear your feedback. So please send us your thoughts, suggestions, or just say hi by visiting us on social media at Canadian Opera or emailing audiences at coc.ca. And if you're a COC subscriber or member, you have access to bonus content and extended interviews, which you can access through your weekly supporter newsletter. So stay tuned for that next week. 
Be the first to find out about free events and concerts from the COC by signing up for our monthly eOpera newsletter at coc.ca slash eOpera. Thank you to all of our supporters for making Key Change possible. This week, we want to especially thank every COC member, subscriber, and donor for coming on this journey with us as we explore new ways to share opera's unique power. So to make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to Key Change, wherever you get your podcasts. Key Change is produced by the Canadian Opera Company and hosted by Robin Grant Moran and Julie McIsaac. To learn more about today's guests and see the show notes, please visit our website at coc.ca slash keychange. <laughs>